Between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed. <clears throat> These are the words of Abraham in our story today, calling, who uh, res- responding to the call from a rich man from his place in Hades. It's a parable of two people. One is named Lazarus, and the other, whose name we do not know, is simply referred to as a rich man. Now, last week's gospel, as you may remember, ended with, you cannot serve both God and wealth. And this story, which follows immediately after that, pulls the curtain on the nameless one who has chosen to serve wealth rather than God. And it underscores the great chasm that too often exists between the rich and the poor. If the rich man had never noticed this great chasm before, it is almost certain that the poor man, Lazarus, certainly had. This is a timeless parable and never more poignant or relevant than in our own time of rising inequality between the rich and the poor. Now, while most of us probably live somewhere in the middle of the extremes of wealth and poverty as they are depicted in this little parable, or as they are actually lived in our highly unequal society, this little story points to a problem that we all must face, and that is, how do we respond to our conscience? Let's take a little closer look at Luke's presentation of this parable. You can think of it as a mini-drama in three little acts. The first is a sort of tableau introducing the characters and their respective ways of life. A brief snapshot, but one in which we learn actually quite a bit about each of them. The rich man is known by his conspicuous consumption. He wears purple, which was made with expensive dyes and was usually reserved uh, for royalty or high-ranking officials. He lives behind gates, his security system to protect him from the jealousies of the poor. He dressed in fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day, we are told. He had everything that a person could want. In the next verse, we meet Lazarus. He is the only person in any of Jesus' parables who is ever given a name. And it is a name that comes from a root word meaning God helps. It's a good thing because the tragic reality of his life is that no one else did. Lazarus is a crippled beggar whose body is covered with running sores. We are told that he is thrown in front of the rich man's gate and that he would happily have gorged himself on the bread that was used to wipe the grease from the people at people's hands at the rich man's table and then thrown away. But the dogs got it instead, and then they came and licked the man's open sores. Pretty graphic, I know, and simply awful, is it not? You don't get much lower than that. Lazarus dies of starvation and disease at the rich man's gate. The first act ends, and we have met our two characters— As far as we know, they have never spoken to each other. Their lives seem to be entirely separate except for geography, divided by a big fence, by a social system that that sees them almost as separate species. 
and by a theological worldview that assumes that if one is rich, it is because he is good, and if the other is poor, it must be because he is sinful and deserves to be poor. Then the scene changes. Act 2. Both men have died, and we see the poor man, Lazarus, resting in the bosom of Abraham. This is a place in Jewish legend that was considered to be the place of the highest bliss. And then we see the rich man being tormented in Hades. We have here a classic reversal of fortunes tale. The one who is rich becomes poor, and the one who is poor becomes rich. And now we become aware that these two lives that were seemingly totally separate actually intertwine with one another. Act 3. The rich man, now in torment, cries out to Abraham across the great chasm. Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. We now know that he knew Lazarus's name, probably had seen him outside his gate, and now, even despite the change in their circumstances, he still expects Lazarus to be his servant. He doesn't even address him personally, but he tells Abraham to send Lazarus to, to, to him to tend to his needs. Entitlement if we ever saw it. The dialogue continues about whether Abraham could send Lazarus then to warn his brothers if he can't send Lazarus to deal with his needs, about what would come upon them if they did not repent of their own ways. But Abraham replies, if your brothers do not listen to Moses and the prophets, like that prophet Amos we heard from here today, neither will they be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. Now Jesus does not condemn the rich because they have money or possessions. The rich man in this little parable is condemned not because he has wealth, but because of the hardness of his heart, because of his refusal to consider the needs of the poor, to count them as fellow human beings, and to treat them as people worthy of dignity, worthy of God's love and mercy, and then to act toward them accordingly. He had no conscience. Albert Schweitzer, the famous medical missionary and Nobel laureate, said, whenever we lose the consciousness that every person is an object of concern for us just because he is a person, civilization and morals are shaken, and the advance to fully developed inhumanity is only a question of time. We are living in a time of growing disparagement of the poor, and the most vulnerable. Signs of that fully developed inhumanity, Schweitzer predicted. And the danger for us all is that we might begin to make that an assumption in our own lives and assume it is normal. Do we really believe that every person is deserving of respect just because he or she is a person? We try to narrow that chasm a little bit here with our monthly community dinners rich and poor alike, breaking bread together, sharing in the abundance of food and fellowship around the tables in our parish hall. 
We do so also at our coffee hour every Sunday. But this past Thursday evening was one of the best yet, one of our best dinners yet, certainly among the best attended. I sat on Thursday evening with a number of women from the wheel shelter in our basement here, including a couple of people I had never seen before. I met a lovely woman who shared some of her story with me, a story of having been a victim of domestic violence that led to her becoming homeless. She had been an executive assistant in a large corporation and had once owned a condo here in Seattle. But now she is homeless and on the street, dealing with the bureaucratic challenges of having a misdemeanor expunged from her record so that she can get a job and hopefully get back on her feet. She expressed her gratitude for having a place to sleep at night here at Trinity and for the warm meal and companionship of our community dinner. She might have been just another homeless person to me when we sat down together, but as we engaged in conversation and her story unfolded, it became so very clear that she is a real person, a person of dignity, made in the image of God and deserving of respect and love. Our life together here on 8th Avenue between James and Cherry offers us a unique opportunity to bridge the chasms that want to keep us separated, that too often cause us to look the other way because we don't know what else to do. Our challenge is to welcome people into our lives, not merely as objects of our charity, but as fellow human beings made in the image of God, people with dignity and humanity, people who, if we listen to them, get to know them, will enrich our lives and help us here to build the beloved community. Now, it's not a sin to live in a nice, warm place and have plenty of food on the table, perhaps even take a vacation once in a while, if you're one of the fortunate ones who can do those things. It is a sin for us to harden our hearts or not take care, not take care about uh, or do anything about our neighbors who do not have those privileges. And this parable may at first glance seem to be a kind of black and white tale about wealth. Rich equals bad, poor equals good. But it's really about basic human values, about the importance of caring for one another, about the importance of paying attention to our consciences and what they say to us. It is, of course, possible to be wealthy and still to be faithful. St. Paul has something to say about that in his letter to Timothy, which we heard today. As for those who are in this present age rich, tell them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. <clears throat> the question is not whether we have money and wealth, but whether we love money more than we love God, whether we share God's concern for the poor and the vulnerable, whether we are too preoccupied with, with personal concerns <clears throat> to notice the Lazarus in our midst.
There's a passage in the Talmud which says, when you have compassion, when you have compassion for others, God has compassion for you. I think that's just another way of saying that when we have compassion for others, we become reflections of God's very own nature. Perhaps you arrived early enough this morning to see a person sleeping under a cardboard box at the entrance to our thrift shop. It was an all too timely and it's an all too common occurrence. And I have to say I get my heart broken pretty much on a daily basis around here as I see what some people have to do just to survive. I struggle as we all do with how to respond. Tell them to leave, bring them inside and turn the whole church into a shelter. Doing what we can as a church and as individuals is so very necessary. Whether it's offering someone a cup of cold water or a hot coffee, or working as an advocate for affordable housing in our city, or working on new and durable solutions to our housing crisis, caring for the mentally ill or the larger issues of inequality in our society. Voting always with our consciences, yes, both with our heads and our hearts. Compassion is never just an option for us. It is a sharing in the suffering of others. It is an essential for all who call themselves by Christ's name. It is something we hope for and expect expect from others when we ourselves are in need. We certainly expect it from God, who in Christ became poor for our sakes and shares in all of our humanity. And it is finally our truest nature, our truest selves. And it is the goal of all of us who are made in the image and likeness of God. Amen.